0: I'd like uh, to take you tonight without jet lag or anything like that to a place called En-Gedi. So we're going to go to En-Gedi and I'll tell you a little bit about it as you feast your eyes on it. It is a place located along the western shores of the Dead Sea, En-Gedi, En en or Ain means Spring-Gedi of the Kid or Goat. Spring of the young goat or of the wild goat, N. Getty, And you can see uh, these mountain goats even there today. Uh, there are some now on the screen. They're called Ibex, and they are amazingly agile. You'll have to take my word for this. They can actually climb trees. We have seen them out on the limbs of trees. Uh, God done did it, and you're going to have to ask him how he pulled that off one day, but he designed them for this particular area. I think there's a strong likelihood that it was this kind of wild mountain goat uh, that David had in mind when in Psalm 42, as you recall, he said, as the deer, as the ibex, pants for the water brooks, and there are many of fresh water brooks in this area so said he my soul pants for thee and so there are these interesting animals there and also another one called a hyrax a hyrax is ibex a deer-like critter and a hyrax which from a distance looks a little more like a rabbit or i can't believe i'm saying this a guinea pig Yes, indeed, that's what it resembles. And uh animals thrive in the area because the area, though uh in the desert and along the Dead Sea, is fed by four springs of water which pour off uh uh limestone cliffs. And so it's an amazingly unusually lush area. It's an oasis and it has it has attracted. Uh, For this reason, people throughout human history there to En not just animals but people. In fact, there's a kibbutz or a collective kind of a farm there today where they grow just about every vegetable imagined. And in particular, you see date palms, date palm trees growing right there along the deadness of the Dead Sea. It kind of uh, reminds me a little bit when we go there of what's going to happen according to Ezekiel. In the time known as the millennial reign of Christ, when this uh, dead, arid Dead Sea area is uh, lush all around, and en- Getty is kind of a, a sample of it down to this very day. Well, David was there, of course, but so was King Solomon. We know this because in the Song of Solomon, uh, King Solomon said this, uh, kind of a romantic uh, declaration he made to someone he was interested in he said uh with reference to his lover he said you are like a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of en man he could turn a word couldn't he that guy boy, that, whoo, boy. i gotta remember stuff like that hey this might be interesting to you yeah, i mentioned the ibex and the hyrax uh Uh, In Psalm 104.18, I wasn't aware of this. I discovered it in the course of studying for tonight. Psalm 104.18, listen to what it says. It says, the high mountains, such as you see here, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the ibex, and the cliffs are a refuge for the... In the New American Standard, it'll say Shephanim, Shephanim, which is a plural Hebrew word. But in other translations, King James, New King James, NIV, it'll actually translate uh, very accurately the word Shephanim. And we'll read, the cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers or the coney. The hyrax is also known, maybe that term is familiar to you, as a cony. So there they are. Both of those animals which you see today are mentioned way back in Psalm 104, uh, verse 18. Uh, en is located, oh, about 30 miles south, just to give you mooring points, south of Jerusalem, and about 11 miles north of a place, I bet you've heard of it, called Masada. Masada, Lord willing and... Some subsequent week, we'll take a journey to Masada. And so that's where it is located, and it is uh, filled with rocks and uh, waterfalls Uh, from a grassy plateau. You can make a not-too-difficult climb uh, about 30 minutes up, and you can get to a place of fresh water brooks. You could take a dip if you want. You could sip from it. And you could see this wonderful waterfall, which is about 300 feet High. And it is a, an absolutely beautiful place, gives you quite a vantage point of the Dead Sea from up there, and it is a, a significant place for two reasons as we read the scriptures. Uh, two very significant events took place there, I'd like to tell you about them. One is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and you know about it. David was on the run, the poor guy, because Saul wanted to kill him. That's just the way it is. You think you've had a bad day. And so David was down there because Saul was in hot, well, insane pursuit. He was coming after little old David with 3,000 men. David and his men, kind of a ragtag bunch of people, were hiding at the time in one of the caves at En Gedi. How do we know that? Well, because that's just what it says in First Samuel chapter twenty-four. Listen to verse one and on. Uh, the time frame is about one thousand BC, approximately. 1000 BC. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. En Gedi, wild goat. So this place we're speaking about tonight is the place where David sought refuge from mad King Saul. And we read on, verse 4, the men of David said to him, this is what happened, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. You see, it as it turned out, Saul ended up occupying the same cave, as the one in which David and his men were hiding, they saw this to be quite providential. Uh, they misinterpreted this to be the act of Almighty God turning over Saul into David's hands for retaliation and revenge. And David got up, he arose, the text says, and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. David's men want David to kill him. And David felt bad over the mere fact uh, that he, he cut a piece of Saul's robe off. And so he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he, Saul, is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded, see the word persuaded? It comes from a Hebrew root, which actually means to tear up or to tear apart. They were so intent on encouraging David to lop off Saul's head and take revenge that David had to tear him up with an argument uh, to the contrary, to dissuade them from extending themselves against the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words. He didn't allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. David refused to take action into his own hands. He refused uh, to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Later, however, he came to Saul and said, what's recorded in verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord be the judge. It's not for me to occupy that role. That's God's doing. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. And he showed Saul that little piece of the garment which he had cut off so as to show him, I could have had your life. But I'm going to trust God to be a better justice maker than I can. So that happened there at En Gedi. You'll remember it now, the next time you read 1 Samuel chapter 24. Something else, equally significant, took place about 200 years later in the same place. So now we're moving to about 800 B.C., This event is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, if you care to look on. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, now it came about after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites... Think of the Edomites when you think of the Muonites, because the Muonites are a branch of the Edomites, and so perhaps the Edomites are a people group you are more familiar with. The point is three people groups are getting together to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat at the time was the king of Judah. Judah was given this area, and gedi as part of their tribal allotment. And so in around 800 BC, these three people groups gathered together at En Gedi for the sole purpose of conspiring against King Jehoshaphat, who resided 30 miles to the north in Jerusalem. They did this right at En Gedi. And in verse 2 it says, then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hasazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. So, so let me just explain something. See where it says they're coming from beyond the sea? What Would you like to guess what sea is in view? The Dead Sea, that is correct. If they're coming from beyond the Dead Sea, think about it. If En Gedi is on the western side of the Dead Sea, they're coming from the other side, they would be coming from what modern-day country? That is correct. They would be coming from Jordan. And so the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites primarily occupied what we would refer to today as modern-day Jordan. They crossed the Jordan River and the Jordan River Valley, the Dead Sea area, and they congregate here at En Gedi, which is referred to as, you see the hyphenated word, Hazazon Tamar. That's what En Gedi was called very early in Israelite history. It's the same place. It's En Gedi. People are a little uncertain about what it means, but it seems to be a reference to palm trees, which grew quite abundantly there in that day. So these three people groups, think about it, folks, three against one. Do you like those odds? Those are not good odds. You're about ready to be overrun by three people groups. You're one people group. Three people groups are coming to get you. So verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's afraid because he's a human. And fear is a human emotion. Did you know fear is an emotion common to humankind? So the next time you're afraid of something, say, this is really good. I'm not a rock. I'm a human. Uh, The issue is not the experience of fear or any emotion. The issue is where the emotion leads one. It did not lead him to cower. Notice, Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord. Well, folks, we just figured out what the challenge for us is in living life. It's not to be free of emotion. It's not to force them over ground. It's not to allow someone to tell you Christians don't have negative emotions. Come on. That's ridiculous. What kind of altered state of consciousness is that? Are you kidding me? It's where the emotions lead you. They can be used to your advantage. You feel something uncomfortable, and you let it be a cue, a signal, causing you to turn your attention to seek the Lord. And not only that, but Jehoshaphat, as a good leader, made sure all the people attended to the Lord as well. He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And so verse 4, Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. I mean, they even came, it says, from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So... You know, look, these are Jewish people, and they're like Baptist people. They have their differences. And they voice their opinions, and sometimes they part ways, and sometimes they have fights, and sometimes they don't get along, and all the rest. But this little bit of adversity is causing great unity. (laughs) And so adversity isn't all that bad, is it? The pressure that these uh, Israelites were under forced them together, didn't it? in uh, giving their attention to the Lord, in fasting and in seeking him. We live in a rough day. It's a challenging day. Okay, what are you going to do? That's the way it is. The Bible tells us not to be surprised by it. Let's not let it force us underground. Let's let it force us together in paying attention to the Lord Jesus more than ever before. So verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem... In the house of the Lord, so that's up there in Jerusalem where the temple is, before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers. He's reminding himself of the connection. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of our fathers. Are you not God in the heavens? And then he paused and waited for God to figure it out and answer. Well, yeah, I think I am. No, 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 no. The question wasn't posed so that God could come up with the right answer. The question wasn't posed to remind God of who He is. The question was posed to remind the one asking the question of who God is. So I could turn this around because I think this is the intent of Jehovah's question, uh, of Jehoshaphat's question. I think he's actually saying, Oh God, you are God in the heavens. I know these three creepy groups from the other side of the river are coming to nail us, but You're the one who's in control. You're sovereign. I'm not worried about these people, all these ites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Muonites, the Termites. I, I can pray to the God who's in heaven, you see? This is one of the things we do when we start by praising God, isn't it, in prayer? We remind ourselves... Who's above all the circumstances? There's a God in the heavens. From that vantage point, in place of superiority and authority, he could surely intervene and take care of us. Are you not ruler over all the the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Verse 7, did you not, O our God, Drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. By the way, I think the question posed in verse 7 is one every American ought to ask and answer correctly today. I'm not sure our president's going to come up with the right answer to the question. I must be honest with you. And then we're in deep doo-doo. But... But... But I'll tell you the answer here, because this is actually a statement in the form of a question. God gave the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't get so modern that you get unbiblical. He gave it to the people. Now, if you have a problem with that, and I do too, I don't understand why he did it, then you can discuss that with God. But the fact that he did it, it, to me, is unquestionable if you're a Bible person. So, so so are they reminding God what he did? No. They're reminding themselves of what God had done. God drove out the Canaanites. Yes, he did. He dispossessed the Canaanites in order to give the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 10, Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. That's where the Edomites live, Mount Seir whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. So, so here's what they say. When Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt, went through wilderness wanderings and is trekking uh, through the wilderness and on their way into the promised land. There was a certain way they could come. It's called the King's Highway. You can travel it today. And it's over there in Jordan. But the land was occupied by these three people groups. So, so the leaders of Israel, Moses and the boys said, Hey, folks, let's make friends. Let's be pals. We don't want anything from, we just want to cut through. Is it okay? It's like a shortcut, uh, for us. And the people in the land, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites said, hang it on your beak. No way. We're not having any, any, uh, any, any Jew cooties over here in our land. Man, forget it. Take your Jewishness elsewhere. We don't want you. And, 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 and they, could, they, could have, they were on a roll. They could have destroyed them, but God said, don't do it. Don't destroy them. Now, I've got to tell you something. That made no sense at the time. You have those who are your adversaries at your mercy... You get them. But God said, don't do it. So you know what Jehoshaphat's doing? He's saying, God, we obeyed you, even though what you asked us to do made no sense to us. We obeyed you. We didn't wipe out these people, though we could have. Maybe we should have. You said, don't do it. Made no sense to us, but we obeyed you. And now look what we're getting. Now they're coming to kill us. Therefore, you have to protect us. See, here's the beauty of obeying God, whether it makes sense or not. <laughs> then you can pray out of the integrity of your heart. You could say, oh God, you got to come through for me. You have to help me. You have to be my supply. You have to deliver me. I'm doing things your way. I'm not doing things my way. So that's what he says. Now verse 12, "O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Well, I guarantee if God heard nothing else before now, and He did, He surely heard this. You know why? It's a cry for help from His kids. Wouldn't you respond to a cry for help from one of your children or grandchildren? You ever want to get the ear of Almighty God? Just tell Him how weak and needy and dependent and empty you are. He's all ears. If you want God to turn from you, tell him what you deserve. Claim your rights. Make a demand. <laughs> You'll be in trouble. God doesn't listen to that. You know what he listens to? God, you have to help me. I am weak. You are strong. He hears that cry. And so uh, God speaks through one of his spokesmen, and this is what the spokesman says. In verse 15, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. I love this phrase for the battle, oh, it's there all right, but the battle is not yours, but God's. (gasps) Fill in the blank. What's your battle? That battle is not yours, but God's. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Yes. You don't have to fight it, but you must not retreat from it. Do not cower in fear. Station yourselves. Stand. See the salvation. There's the formula for victory in life. Four S's. Station. Stand. See. Salvation. Doesn't say. Think about fighting the battle. God's going to do that. You just show up. <laughs> See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Oh man, it's great to be a Christ one, because Christ Jesus will do things on behalf of those who are His. Think about it. Wow. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. It was a spontaneous, it wasn't a liturgical, formal, dignified thing. He, sometimes you just get so he was overcome. He just he fell with his face. I mean, if you were in trouble, like he was in trouble, and God said to you, Don't worry about a thing, I got it taken care of. I'll take care of this. Ah uh, You're going to express yourself as well. So he falls with his face to the ground, worshiping the Lord, and when they began singing and praising, the Lord said, ambushes. What a battle strategy. I spent 17 years around the military. We never learned that one. Sing and praise, and that will give you the victory. When they began singing and praising, the Lord said, ambushes. Why? Because when you sing and praise, you know what you're doing? You're like a carefree little kid who is saying, my father's on duty. I could relax. I don't have to go through life in a white knuckle fashion, clinging for dear life. Because my father is clinging to me. I can sing and I could praise. And that shows me the battle has already been won over. victory in Jesus by Jesus because of Jesus I'm not going to fight the battle I'm just going to sing and praise him and so they were routed is the outcome all right so here's what happened at Engedi two people giants you know of David and Jehoshaphat at Engedi both let God be God they both acted on the stated, declared truth, that the battle was not theirs, but God's. David had a battle once at another place in Israel. We'll go there, Elah Valley, in another w- few weeks. Uh, David's battle, a giant-sized one, was against Goliath. He took care of Goliath and God's strength. But I think the battle he faced at En was even bigger than Goliath. It was the uh, The battle to resist the temptation to take one's own revenge. That's a battle. And David won it. He conquered the human inclination for vengeance. Uh, He conquered a greater foe even than Goliath. He let God be the justice maker. And at En Jehoshaphat faced a giant-sized battle as well. It wasn't against the temptation for vengeance. It was against the temptation to be overcome by fear. And so instead, he turned his attention to seek the Lord, and he reflected on God's promises and God's character and God's faithfulness, and he too overcame his giant-sized foe. In his case, it was fear. So I ask you again, what is your battle? Maybe it is also with you this appetite for revenge against someone who's hurt or offended you, maybe even abused you. Maybe your foe is the battle against fear. Maybe it has to do with finances or health or who knows what. I don't know why. Maybe it's something else. It doesn't it doesn't matter what what it is. The point is why not join David and Jehoshaphat at and Gedeon Learn this life lesson. And here's the life lesson I'd like for us to connect with this place. The battle is not yours. It is God's. Therefore, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Just as he came through for David and Jehoshaphat, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf as well. On one of our trips to Israel, we were at En Gedi and we made the hike up to the waterfall and we were on our way down. It was hot and crowded and we were getting down pretty much to the base of the mountain. And I noticed this young boy ahead of me a few paces um, and he started to call out like this, Abba, Abba. And then the cries got to be a little more frantic. Abba, Abba, and he's looking all around, and he was being jostled by the crowd. Abba means papa or daddy. You hear the word um, uttered all all over Israel by little kids with reference to their dad. There was only one person in that entire crowd of people who would dare refer to that man up ahead a few paces as Abba. Abba means attachment. In this case, it was a father-son attachment. I wouldn't call the guy Abba. He's not my daddy. But this little kid had that special relationship. And I think this little kid was becoming fearful because he lost sight of his Abba. And I think he might even had, uh, maybe he was beginning to become even a little um, angry because people were pushing him and jostling for position. Maybe too, he was battling against fear and this need for wanting to pull off and punch somebody, you know, revenge, I don't know. And then it occurred to me, I, you, if you're a Christian, you have an Abba relationship with transcendent deity, creator of the universe. The God of the Hebrew fathers is your God. You're tied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith. You have as much access to him as that little boy had access to his Earthly, Abba, we don't have to go through life as if the battle against fear, against revenge, against fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, is to be fought by us. Oh, no. Abba, Abba, is it true? The battle is not mine, it is yours? Yes, my son. Yes, my daughter. What am I to do then, Abba, retreat? Oh, no. Stand up. Station yourselves. Don't fall away. And have a spirit of expectancy, would you, my son, my daughter? Keep your eyes wide. See the salvation which I will give you for your sake and on your behalf for you are mine. Abba, Father, who could call you that except those who have come through the Son, the Lord Jesus Except those who've received adoption through him. Thank you, Abba, that we don't go through the turbulence of life alone. And that we could, as David and Jehoshaphat did at En Gedi, turn it over to you and let you take care of our battles as well. Father, would you help us to be relieved of the burdens which we're carrying some of us many of us maybe most of us needlessly for the battle is not ours it is yours and now we're excited about standing and stationing ourselves so as to see clearly the salvation of the lord on our behalf this we pray in the name of the lord jesus amen